Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Thought Leadership Project podcast. Got a really exciting guest today. But before we introduce him, Jay, uh, I wanted to run a overrated, underrated by you. Let's do it. All right. So you seem to be representative of a phenomenon that I've witnessed. This is informal study. Okay. So not like the study that we're going to talk to. So my research seems to indicate that of all of my friends that move away from the major metropolitan area in which you used to live and I currently live, it seems like the further away they get from the big city, the more prone they are to liking country music. Mm, okay. So I want to ask you, because I know you sort of dabbled in the uh, the twang a little bit. Um, so country music, overrated or underrated? Um, probably still underrated to an extent. Really? See, my um, I know it's big. It's much bigger than it used to be. But um, I, I do think that there's still a lot of people, even even up here where I live uh, now, who really aren't country music fans, don't don't know any of the country music artists. Um, and, and I do think that the, the music is, is, is really good and I've always enjoyed it. Now, the thing was, it didn't come as a result of me moving away from the big city. Actually, mm. what, what happened, how I got introduced to country music is that, is that my wife, Heather was during college, a waitress at Cracker Barrel, um, in, in, uh, Perrysburg, Ohio, and they play nonstop country music. And so I, I, you know, in college, it was not something that I listened to at all, but then she listened to it all the time. And. And there we go. So we've been to, you know, I've, I've, we attend concerts pretty frequently, not anymore, obviously, but country music definitely dominates that list of, uh, of concerts we go to. So I, I don't know. I just, I still find a lot of people who think uh, sort of reflexively say, ah, I don't, I'm not a country music fan or, or don't know any of the artists. And I, so I, I guess in my personal experience, I find it to be underrated probably because I like it so much. Yeah. Yep. Well, there is a strain of country music that I do like, um, which is not the traditional or even the the new sort of what do they call it the highway mm-hmm. country yep. um and that's alternative country which is bands like well even the avet brothers who i know you like are somewhat yep. alt country mm-hmm. mumford and sons maybe um and of course my favorites are wild feathers and jayhawk so there's something to that um but I'll let you pass with the underrated. I, I thought it did coincide with your moving away. I got a buddy who moved to kind of the outskirts of Grand Rapids, and now he's like the biggest country music fan in the world. So, so it yeah. just again, I don't know that our uh, guest today would say that uh, you know having two respondents to your survey is probably <laughs> statistically um, accurate. But why don't we get into that, Jay? Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so we have a guest today, as as Tom mentioned, uh, who. We're going to be talking about various things, including market research and, and statistics. But uh, let's bring him in. Lee W. Fredrickson, uh, who's a PhD, is managing partner at Hinge, a leading research-based branding and marketing firm for professional services. So Hinge conducts groundbreaking research into high-growth firms and offers a complete suite of services for firms that want to become more visible and grow. So Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. That sounds great. Well, I, we're, we're going to get into all sorts of issues related to thought leadership, marketing, uh, market research. First, though, I wanted to ask you something uh, a bit more personal. I, Having reviewed your bio, I see that among your interests are hot rods. 
um, uh -huh. and that as a uh, at least as a younger man, you you used to race cars. Do you still do that? And and how did you get into cars? Uh, well, I grew up with cars uh, all around, so uh, I, I don't remember never not being into cars. Uh, so maybe I was born that way. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't race uh, cars professionally, but I do still have a hot rod. I got a 1932 Ford Roadster Ooh. with is a that, Chevy V8, 350. Is that the car uh, on your profile pic, on your bio? Yeah, that, that thing's That pretty, is the very one. That's pretty sweet. Um, yeah. That, that's Her name is Candy. Amazing. Is Now, is that the car you mentioned in your bio that you kind of rebuilt? Uh, is that that's, the that's the car I always wanted when I was in high school and growing up. Okay. Uh, and uh, it took me a while to get it, but I finally have it. <laughs> awesome. Well, good for you. All right. All right. So let's get into uh, let's get into the meat of the discussion here. So you you and your firm uh, develop um, and and recently released a study called the High Growth Study 2021 that is kind of looking at uh, the characteristics of firms that you define as either high growth or low growth. And so I wanted, I thought it might be helpful to just start with um, defining some terms here. In particular, what do you mean when you say a high growth firm? Can you, can you put some uh, kind of characteristics around what that type of firm looks like? Yeah, we can indeed. Uh, there are firms that grow at least by 20% annually. And we look at that over a three-year period. So they consistently are growing at least at that rate. And uh, the no-growth firms are the ones that surprisingly don't grow, mm -hmm. uh, that don't show that kind of growth. And that's, uh, that's how we really start to tease out some of the differences between high-growth firms, those that are really uh, knocking it, and those that don't. Yeah, the study was very interestingly, um, tons of data. And could you give us, what were some of the two or three highlights or takeaways, maybe something that surprised you? Because I think we might have an intuition as to what we think fuels these high growth firms, but what did you find that would be of interest to our listeners? Well, one of the things we found uh, was surprising to us uh, when we found it initially is that high growth firms are also more profitable than slower growing firms. Because the, the natural thing you think, well, it takes capital to grow. So if you're growing fast, you take a lot of capital. Well, and the reality of it, they're actually more profitable. They spend more on marketing and are end up being more profitable. So they're really doing something right. And that something right is when you look at it is they're really closely aligned with their customers, their clients. If you will, that that's uh, you know the I, I think the underlying thing, and they do a lot of things to keep aligned with them. And just to be clear, so this is the 2020 study. This mm -hmm. is during COVID, post COVID. This is during COVID, so we collected it during the fall of 2020. Uh, we collected the data for that period. So this was uh, you know firms had the full impact of that, and and that's one of the things we uh, that surprised us because. We expected that these firms would, you know, uh, there would be far fewer firms that were high growth in this time period. And that's not what we found. It was very close to the same. And while some of the growth rates were down in some sections of the industries, there was also quite a number of firms that really grew very, very well. Yeah, it, what's interesting is what you just mentioned just previously too, is that not only were there so many high growth firms to your surprise, but to my surprise, 
that so many were willing to invest significantly in marketing during a time when a lot of us were sort of, excuse the uh, terminology, freaking out. Uh And maybe people were pulling back. So there was, I think their bravery was rewarded. Is there any, anything in your data that shows, um, a correlation between how much they invested, you know, like, was there a growth in marketing or did they maintain their marketing spend and how did that play out? Uh, there's actually growth in marketing. Uh, some firms are actually growing their marketing budget. And some of that, when you peel back, I mean, initially, uh, you know, I had the same reaction as you did. That sounds like, Oh gee, that shouldn't be that way. You would think that they would not grow, but really what's happening is some of them are retooling and adapting to the situation they find themselves in. Uh, they find themselves, we need to pivot a little bit and go after slightly different clients. Or, you know, we have to do what we used to do on person. We have to now figure out how to do that remotely. So we need to spend more on promotion to be able to get that out. We need to have a new infrastructure in our marketing to be able to market to people digitally where before we were doing it eyeball to eyeball. So I, I think some of those things account for some of the additional spending, but I think you're right. Uh, it's raw chutzpah or guts that uh, a lot of them saying we're on the right track. Now let's, we see an opening here, hit the gas, don't hit the brake, hit the gas. And, uh, and that's what they did. And uh, I've talked to several firms that have done that. And actually that's what uh, Hinge did. And, we found that this quarter has been the strongest year we've ever had, the strongest quarter. And I, I think that's what we're seeing with other firms as well, is they, they saw the opening, they saw the opportunity with their clients and their offerings lined up with this. So they stepped on the gas and they went for it and it worked. Yeah, and, and beyond, so firms are investing, obviously allocating more dollars and resources towards this. What were some of the, the actions, behavior, strategies that were really working for firms that would fall into the high growth category um, in, in the time frame of your study? Great question. Uh, I, w- I would say one of the things that uh, is working, if you, if you back up a second and you say, what's the problem that needs to be solved here? And the biggest problem, the biggest challenge is everybody says it's unpredictability in the marketplace. We have no idea what's going to happen. You know, which way is this going to go? When is it going to happen? All that unpredictability. So everyone sees that. The high growth firm said, what do we do about that? And they did research to figure out, okay, where are our clients going? What are they worried about? What's on their mind? What are their needs? And when they figured that out, then, okay, now we adapt. So accounting firms, for example, some of our clients, they stood up uh, practices just aimed at helping people with their PPP loans, payroll protection. They set up new business units just focused on that and started doing a tremendous amount of business there. Uh, similarly, we had clients that were in the public health space. All of a sudden, they had to figure out how do we help these organizations and these associations and school systems deal with this. So they saw a market opportunity where their clients had a need. It was maybe a somewhat different need than uh, they were thinking it would be in 2021, but uh, here they are. And they made the adjustment and they went for it. So, the, you know, there, there's a, a big underlying thing that's happening here. There is a rise in something we call relevance. 
And let me explain what that means is if you ask somebody, you know, what are your most important business priorities? The things that really, you know, you're really focused on. And then you say, how important is this firm to addressing those? And zero to 10, how important is it? If what we're seeing is people are selecting firms that are more and more relevant to what they're doing. So I can't, and what you hear people saying is, I can't spend time trying to teach someone my industry. I don't have time to do that. I don't want to pay you to learn my industry. I want you to teach me about the industry. Mm -hmm. Teach me something I don't know. Make me smarter. And folks are waking up that, wait a second, I don't need to spend my time my money teaching someone about my industry or about my challenge, I can find someone who understands my industry, understands my challenge. And since they're remote anyway, I don't care, you know, if I live in Tucson, it doesn't matter that they're in Tacoma. You know, it just matters that they understand my situation and they know how to help me. And that's really that rise. You, you're seeing the market saying, hey, wait a minute, I don't need to just hire somebody who I met at the Rotary, I can find somebody who understands my problem. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we oftentimes will talk about that on, on our show and with our clients. It's just the, the ability to nationalize one's practice by sort of shrinking the focus of, of your, the market you're serving. And there's no reason why. And that, that, it, that's only accelerated through COVID, as you mentioned, that the geographic borders have become far less important um, than the relevance of the service offering and the expertise you have. So, so that doesn't surprise me, uh, surprise me one bit. And then, you know, obviously that requires the ability to reach people in other markets. So you mentioned how um, digital became much more important and we've certainly seen mm -hmm. that. Um, is that is that true of high growth firms as well? They're really um, leaned into much more digital marketing in 2020? Yes, yes. It, and it was actually more true earlier uh, that the high growth firms were the ones that woke up to digital marketing a little bit sooner. And so they had an advantage. They could sell traditionally and they could also sell digitally. So they had a dual advantage. Now, uh, I think in some ways that advantage has sort of been uh, attenuated a bit because now everybody is digital. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I think that that, uh, you know, over time, some people will probably uh, naturally drift away from that and they'll forget the lessons they learned about remote and they'll go back to what was comfortable uh, a few years ago. But uh, I don't think the market will forget and uh, there will be new players uh, in new markets that weren't there before. And that's what people are seeing, more competition. Yeah, I think there is quite a bit of permanence to the lessons we've learned in the last 12 months or so. Maybe not entirely. You're, you're right. I think there's going to be people who want to go back to their old habits. And those old habits will be more useful at some point in the future. But I do think a mastery of the digital space is something that's going to persevere beyond this immediate crisis. And we're still finding that while people might be embracing the notion of digital, they're still reluctant from a tech aversion standpoint. So they're afraid yeah. to express that, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I need to learn. Somebody needs to train me. Like, this is all new to me. Yeah. When really, it's the medium that's new. It's not really the processes. But as you know, Lee, I think you know that, we, you know, we focus our audience and our practice on the legal industry. Mm -hmm. And what jumped out at me in, in your survey is that the legal industry took the top spot as the most profitable 
yes. in, in 2020 among the, all of the professional service categories. So did you get a sense for whether that was due to because they were tightening their belts or as you said earlier, they were being more aggressive. They were exploring the hoot spot. And the reason I asked that is in the context of what I just said, which is the legal industry can be slow to adopt change. So to get a bunch mm-hmm. of lawyers who are used to meeting face to face and suddenly get them active on LinkedIn isn't as easy as it might sound. So I'm just curious what you found there relative to a correlation to people adopting digital. Uh, it, it's a great question. And uh, it, it's a, uh, it's, I think the answer is a little bit complex. On one level, uh, they did tend to lay off some people. Uh, mm-hmm. They were fairly aggressive on that compared to some of the other industries. So I think that might have helped some of the profitability. And of course, historically, law firms have been among the most profitable professional service organizations because of their billing rates and their billing structure and the way they've gone about doing it, that, that has resulted in some, uh, some higher levels of profit. So I, I think both of those things kind of play into it. Uh, and then of course, uh, one of the things that we find is many professional services actually benefit when there is complexity and confusion mm. uh, among those are accounting and legal. Uh, and of course, consulting tends to be when people are confused about what are the new rules? How is this going to work out? What sort of liability am I going to have here? And, uh, you know, can I require people to be vaccinated before they get back to work? Those kinds of things are things that generate questions and generate business and generate fees. Uh, you will also see that, uh, you know, the investment community didn't waste any time in terms of getting busy. So, you know, M&A activity has been surprisingly strong, given that there's been quarantine. So the money has found its way in and and that has driven that part of the industry. So I think there are a few things that have kind of gone together that helped kept the profitability up there. Yeah. And I know as a former corporate restructuring lawyer myself, you know, what was expected to be the driver of growth, which was, you know, insolvency, restructuring work, it really never materialized, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, people were bulking up in those areas when I guess, you know, what maybe was not anticipated was they should have been bulking up in um, labor and employment law, so many employment issues with the shutdowns, but who could have anticipated hey, that? Percy. So I guess, you know, um, litigation, insurance coverage work, all, yeah. you know, and transactional work, as you mentioned, was was much higher and, and, uh, and more, I mean, it was a robust IPO market, uh, you know, SPAC transactions, mm-hmm. things that you, can, you can't really anticipate, which gets back to the point, Lee, I think you made earlier, which is the ability to remain nimble and move fast and pivot and it, bring new things to the market is, is very key, I think, for, for any firm that wants to be a high growth firm. And, and what also surprised me, and, and maybe this is reflected in your research, is just, you know, in, a, in the legal industry, which has traditionally moved slow, as Tom mentioned, um, how fast it moved. And I think all the professional services moved really fast. It's kind of a reflection of Parkinson's law, right? Where things allow, things take the time you allow for them. And mm-hmm. in, in a crisis, um, firms move fast and pivoted. And I mean, what was it? Law firms, 25. What, what was the, uh, what was the statistic on profitability? Profitability grew by 25% in terms of profitability in 2020? Or was that, am I misinterpreting that? that? That's the proportion of them that were in the high profit category. I got you. Okay, right, right. And that's pretty remarkable. So yeah. uh, I yeah. don't know. I, that, was a, that was a long rant, but uh, any reaction to that? Well, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, these industries 
uh, and law is certainly like that, are complex and they have different segments to them that, that behave very differently and very dynamic. And you are absolutely right that that nimbleness and that ability to track your audience and understand where they are and react quickly, uh, that's one of the things that is a sure sign of it. Uh, another thing we've seen is that firms that uh, have embraced automation earlier on that have more robust automation also did better. And we think that there, there's a probably a common cultural characteristic there that if you're open to automation, you're open to changing your processes, you're open to efficiency. Uh, I think you're open to that kind of change and flexibility, which I, I think is very, very helpful in this kind of a turbulent and uh, unpredictable marketplace. Yeah, can we just talk the three of us as a group about something in particular that your, your, your research shows and you mentioned earlier, and it's this notion of digital leads. I think to a lot of law firms or people in traditional business to business professional services, the concept of a digital lead sounds foreign and maybe a little bit unrealistic because mm -hmm. we're used to, you know, our business is done the old fashioned way and, you know, nobody's going to fill out a form to hire an attorney, that type of thing. So what do we all mean when we say digital leads? Is it somebody clicking on a link and entering a credit card? It's obviously not that. So help an attorney understand what a digital lead might look like. Yeah, uh, a digital lead is where, uh, the way we define it is when someone uses an inherently digital channel, uh, your website, uh, social media, uh, a, a webinar to reach out and express their interest in, in discussing working with you, discussing a matter. So that's what we're referring to as a digital lead. So think social media, uh, website leads, uh, those kinds of leads. Uh, they can be digital advertising too. Now, the thing about those is historically, a lot of firms saw that they said, these leads are low quality. These are not qualified people. They're mm. just junk leads. Nobody's going to do that. Uh, that is, if you think of this just in the only the narrowest context that uh, someone, the way someone's going to respond to you, no, they're not going to shop for legal services the way they shop for uh, you know, toilet paper or uh, a new pair of shoes. They're going to shop the way they have shopped in the past. In other words, they're going to have a business situation. They don't know whether that situation bears uh, solving or not. So they research it. They look something up. They go to their computer. They type in something. Oh, there's an article on that topic. They read that article. They go click to another one. They read that two, three, and they start to educate themselves. At some point, they conclude, you know what? I think I need to do something about that. Who am I going to talk to? Hmm. Well, this was a good article. Let me talk to that person. That's a digital lead. Right. And so much of that. That's how it happens. It happens because they're researching a business issue that's of relevance. Yes, it can happen where somebody can say, we need a law firm, you know, go find us a law firm and they search directly. But the overwhelming bulk of the time, they're doing what they normally do. They're trying to solve a business challenge facing them and they're trying to figure out how to do it and what is relevant to solving that business challenge. Right. And Jay, two things I would just add to that. That's a great summation, Lee, because um, here's some reassurance to somebody who might be put off with the notion of digital leads. Eventually, they're nurtured into the good old fashioned phone call 
meeting, whether it's going to be in person or over a Zoom, it, it doesn't stay digital, in other words, typically in the, the legal realm. So you will get plenty of chance to glad hand and win it in the room. The, the point that you're making is when people are shopping, they might not even be looking to hire, but they're looking to solve an issue or answer a question. And some 70% of that may have happened long before they even reach out to you as a service provider. They may even just have been banking all of your thought leadership knowledge that they've consumed over the course of the last five years. And then suddenly, Jay, they have an opportunity, they have a need, and they don't need to think about who they're going to hire because they've already been conditioned through the thought leadership and all that stuff that's happening digitally, but it's going to eventually become a real live relationship that you're going to have with the prospect. And that is so right. That is exactly on. As a matter of fact, we know that the very best leads we get and the very best leads our clients get are digital leads. Mm-hmm. One where the person has educated themselves and they've already decided they want to work with you or at least consider working with you before they even pick up the proverbial phone. Yeah. At that point, it really just becomes a question of, you know, is it you want to get on the phone, determine, do you have that fit with the person and the agency or the firm? And what's the pricing? Like you've done, the selling has been done through your content over time. And and you, all of the thought leadership work you've done has just sort of nurtured and built trust over time. So that's absolutely right. I mean, that's why it's so important to have a robust digital footprint, because for every issue, whether it is like Lee said, a, a pair of shoes or sophisticated uh, professional services these days, everyone's first going to the channels of social media and Google to really dig in and do research on those issues. So, so I, I totally agree with that. Um, so what is, uh, is maybe last topic here, Lee, which is um, how, how can firms use uh, market research themselves, um, much the way that you've done uh, with Hinge to create this study to um, both I guess, gain insight into their clients or a market that they're trying to um, establish themselves in, and then maybe as a marketing and thought leadership tool itself. Yeah, uh, well, the, uh, it's a great point, Jerry. There, there's really two fundamental uses of research. The first is to gain insight into the market, as you pointed out. And usually the way I recommend it is figure out first and foremost, who is your target audience? Who is your target client that you want more of? Secondly, figure out what are the challenges they're facing or that the, the questions that they want answered. So if you ask about those, their challenges and really understand their challenges, that'll do two things. One, it'll give you the insight so you can pivot and offer the services and or make your services relevant. The other thing it'll do is it'll give you something that people really care about. They really care about how other people in their industry think about these issues or what your competitors are doing. I mean, you think about it, if you're in a law firm, you care about, gee, what's happening with other law firms? You know. What's going on? How are they handling this? Mm -hmm. So you can use that same research that you use to gain that insight as a piece of content to share with potential clients. And that shows that potential client, gee, they really care about my industry. They've researched it. They're answering these questions that they must really know something. They're a firm I want to talk to. Great. Outstanding. And you referenced the sort of niche again. So I just wanted to put another plug in for if you're narrowly defining your niche and serving a distinct audience and you're doing the your work well with the thought leadership content, 
you may, when that prospect finally calls, you may have already eliminated all of the competition because there's no one that does it the way you do. There's no one that can demonstrate the expertise and insights that you have. So when they're calling you, it's to figure out, can they hire you? Not, can I put you on a short list? So last question for you, for me, Lee, is country music overrated or underrated? Underrated. <laughs> oh, well, there I, we think, go. I think we have our, uh, our verdict. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Again, not <laughs> maybe not statistically significant, but uh, but we've well, got it a, is among this group. Yeah, it, <laughs> it is. That's right. Yes. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, Lee, thanks so much. Hey, why don't you before we wrap? Why don't you uh, kind of tell our listeners how they can learn more about you? Uh, maybe connect with you, that kind of thing. Learn more about Hinge. Okay. Uh, the most direct way is to go to our website, which is Hinge Marketing, uh, spelled just the way it sounds, like the thing that opens your door marketing. Got it. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today, uh, Lee. It was it was informative and, and enjoyable conversation. So hopefully our listeners felt the same way. And uh, we will be back next week with another episode. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.